in order to solve the labor crisis, the only way to do that is with technology that scales in such a way where it's easily repeatable and you can fill that labor shortage with thousands of robots, not with dozens or hundreds. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to episode 172. Today, we're going to discuss how to refocus your startup's mission and deliver robotic solutions at scale. Our guest this week is Jordan Kretschmer, co-founder and CEO of Rapid Robotics. Rapid Robotics delivers speed, service, and savings with fully integrated robotic automation solutions for common manufacturing and supply chain tasks. And I should also say that this episode was recorded live in San Francisco, California, on a recent trip I took out there where, hey, we recorded some podcasts, we threw a manufacturing happy hour party at Bear Bottle Brewing, We're going to be doing more of that this year, visiting breweries, doing podcasts on site, checking out some new cities. Anyway, here are a couple things you can expect from this week's episode. First, this isn't Jordan's first soiree in the startup world. So we're going to hear a bit about his origin story and how that led to Rapid Robotics. Second, and honestly, this was the part that I was most excited to learn about. Jordan shares what it's been like getting more laser focused on their mission at Rapid Robotics. So whether you work at a startup like Jordan, a large company, or somewhere in between, there's a lot to learn here about the things you need to do to stick to your mission and refocus where necessary. As always, if you want to learn more, check out the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 172. And also a couple announcements here on the front end. Coming up on May 6th through 9th, we've got Automate 2024 in Chicago, Illinois. That's one of the events that I look forward to. Every year, we're going to be doing a lot of event coverage. And if you are in the automation industry, that is the event to be at this year. You're going to be hearing a lot more about the show on them in the coming months. So keep your ears out. But in the meantime, make sure to register for free for Automate 2024. Go to AutomateShow.com to do that today. And of course, if you want to be part of conversations with manufacturing leaders, well, hey, join the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community on LinkedIn Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. It'll take you to our private group. Shoot me a message on LinkedIn so I know you're interested in joining, and I will let you write in. It's a great place to connect with folks in the industry and take your career to the next level. All right, it's time to really kick things off. We're going somewhere cool for today's interview, and it's not a bar. It's not a brewery. In fact, you'll hear a bit of um, technology at work in the background from time to time during this recording. You're going to learn where we are in just a second as we'll hear it straight from Jordan Kretschmer. Jordan, welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be out here on your home turf in San Francisco, California, not just the Bay Area, but San Francisco proper. The first question I have to ask is, where are we right now? Because I was somewhat familiar with this place before I moved away. This is a fairly prominent makerspace in the city, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we are at 100 Hooper Street um, in downtown San Francisco, which is kind of near the design district. Lots of PDR or manufacturing related kind of space here. As you mentioned, there's 
two different maker studios, which has been really cool. We actually collaborated with one of them that's on the same sort of block as us. It's brand new space. So it's very rare to find like good manufacturing hardware oriented space in, especially in the city of San Francisco, that isn't, you know, an old warehouse that, you know, mm-hmm. doesn't have heat or AC or anything like that. And so one of the big things about finding this was that, you know, floor to ceiling glass, it looks you know, beautiful inside. It's great for employees and, and people who want to come work here. Um, mm-hmm. It makes them want to be here. Tons of open floor space behind us that you can't see right now, but, uh, you know, it's all workshop space. And then upstairs, we have all our desking and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a great separation and the location is perfect right next to Caltrain. So if you want to come work at Rapid, yeah. live in the South Bay. You're a yep. three-minute walk off getting off the train. And you can hear what's going by right now. I mean, not only not only the Caltrain, but just to provide some context of how central this place is. I mean, the Giants Stadium is right over the way. The new Golden State Warriors Stadium is just down the way. Like, this is it's kind of a unique spot to have a maker space. Like, yes, which is what was so cool about it, right? To us, I mean, you know, the first time I walked in here, you know, I said, yeah, this was it. We looked at 10 other spaces and the location, um, the accessibility to the highway is right there. You know, all three of them right there. Um, and, uh, and, and just the, the different feel of, of walking in here than a typical sort of manufacturing kind of, kind of shop. So it also serves as a, as a show, a show place for our customers. We have a lot of customers who come here to do, you know, FATs and things like that before we deploy on their sites mm-hmm. and they love being here. And that's really fun also is that, you know, we host, host events here for our customers all the time. And it's just a cool place to be. Well, I hadn't put two and two together until I literally pulled up here like an hour ago. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been here a lot before. Yeah. Well, we want to talk about rapid robotics today. But before we get there, I have to ask you about your background, because as I was doing my research before this, you founded a company called LiveFire, which I believe you sold to Adobe. Yes. And it's the largest cloud-based content and community platform on the web for marketers and publishers. My question is, how do you go from that to robotics? That's a great question. Um, it starts with uh, after doing MarTech for 12 years, much of it at LiveFire as the founder and CEO, and then um, as a general manager over uh, three business units at Adobe, um, I was pretty done with marketing technology Sure, and uh, had never uh, actually meant to get into MarTech. It was kind of an accident that the market was there for the technology we were building. And then, of course, when we were acquired by Adobe, I saw an opportunity to get out of the pure software and marketing space. And the reason I chose robotics, I mean, it was a two-year journey after the acquisition by Adobe of trying to figure out, I knew I wanted one thing very specifically, which is I wanted to have an impact on the real world. Mm-hmm. And marketing to me at the time, it was you know a hot space for SaaS and we built a great business and all of that, but I never felt like what we were doing was valuable to society. And so taking the lessons learned of starting and operating an enterprise software business with a SaaS model, I started looking at all the spaces related to our physical lives. So, you know, from energy to supply chain, warehousing and manufacturing, to me, manufacturing represents the lifeblood. It's the starting place of pretty much everything that makes our society run. Mm-hmm. It also contributes about 14% of the GDP of the country. Yeah. And so it is a massive space that needs to grow very aggressively. And in the traditional ways of deploying automation and robotics, I mean, there was no way it was going to grow. The labor shortage is growing at about 25% per year in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the number of robots installed per year is growing at a rate of 2%. And so you don't see any possible outcome where robotics workforces could actually have an impact on our economy unless there is scalability. So creating scalability means, one, making it affordable, two, making it highly repeatable. So using 
new technologies um, that we are deploying that enable the robot to sort of self-learn and adapt to its environment with human instincts as opposed to being pre-programmed and like hard-coded to do a job. And that makes it more scalable. So you can take one work cell that's trained on a type of part and you can extrapolate that and deploy multiple robots that are doing the same thing with very little additional overhead. And until we get to that level of scale where a customer can deploy 100 robots for the same price and the amount of time it would take them to deploy four or five in the traditional way, that's the only place that scalability is going to come from. And that's the only way we're going to have an actual real impact on the GDP of this country, on the competitiveness of our manufacturing operations against globalization and de-risk supply chains. I mean, we've all seen over the last few years, incredibly harmful disruptions to supply chain. And it just seems to just keep on happening, starting with COVID and then the Suez Canal being shut down from a boat getting stuck. And now the war in the Middle East and all of these components, there is no control over any of those things that happen around us. And so in order for us to have a reliably growing and, and authoritative manufacturing sector in the US, we have to localize, right? We have to make more reliable supply chains and also to keep prices down and keep inflation down and all of those things happen from localizing uh, you know, manufacturing operations. Um, and so anyway, you asked the question, why did I switch? You can kind of tell probably from my passion around this, yeah. impacting our physical lives and how we interact with each other and the spaces around us was prime for what I was looking for. And when I found robotics and found this opportunity and met uh, who ended up being my founding team members mm -hmm. of, of Rapid, it was a big moment for me because I didn't understand robotics. At the time, I had taught myself everything I could about manufacturing. I had visited 30 some odd manufacturing facilities and done all of that, understood the problem. But in terms of the technology and the capabilities that required having the right people on my team, and that's one of our core values at Rapid actually, is diversity of background, mm -hmm. right? Because the more opinions and experiences that people can bring to the table, the better decisions you make. Mm -hmm. And so where, you know, I could bring all of the ideas around how to make a profitable business model out of what is now called robotics as a service or RAS, right? Yeah. Which at the time would actually didn't have a name in the market. Um, in order to do that required different kinds of thinking than what two robotics PhDs starting an AI robotics company would have brought to the table five years ago. So one thing I have to ask then, because you're hitting on a lot of topics that are near and dear to the heart of the manufacturing happy hour audience. One thing they might not be as familiar with is doing something like this in an environment like San Francisco as well, because one kind of a personal question I have for you is, are you seeing other people getting on board? I don't want to call it a manufacturing or hard tech bandwagon, but are you seeing other people that have spent a long time in software or MarTech or these other, let's, let's be honest, non-physical industries? Are you seeing other people being like, you know what, I'm, I'm ready for manufacturing. What are you seeing out here? So, you know, it's funny. I, I actually don't know anybody else like myself um, who has gone from one completely unrelated industry into okay. manufacturing and robotics. A lot of it, I think, stems from the fact that I'm not an engineer, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I was looking for the next thing, I was looking for specific market conditions and specific needs in that market and whether or not there was a technology solution to be had and whether or not there was a profitable business model that was also deliver return on investment very quickly for the customers and allow them to scale at the levels they need to while also delivering enough revenue to support a growing business. And so that dynamic is is tough. And for me, that was how I approached it though. And if it just happened to be robots in manufacturing where that where the opportunity was, 
then I'm going to go deep on that, right? I'm going to learn everything I can. And more importantly, I'm going to surround myself with people who have the kind of experience directly with robotics. And the way I approached it and the way I told investors who asked that same question, we were closing our seed round, our series A round, our series B round. That was a question I got all the time. What gives you the right? You sure. like to start a robotics company. And what I always said is the robot doesn't matter. Yeah. The robot doesn't matter. Like we can use any robot on the market from, you know, you know, cheap uh, Abos all the way to Fanix and Yaskawas and URs. Like we can use them all. And so the robot is a tool at the end of what we are doing, which is building intelligent software mm-hmm. to run that robot in such a way where it, it doesn't require any programming and it, it handles variability in the work cell environment like a human would. Just because I don't know how to program a robot, which I kind of do now, by the way, because, you know, others sure. on the team have taught me, hey, um, but it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Because our customers don't know how to program robots. Mm-hmm. They don't care how it works either. They just want to, the solution to be valuable, profitable, reliable, and mm-hmm. fast and scalable, right? Like all of these things. And so that doesn't take somebody being an expert in robotics to do that, as long as you surround yourself with people who know how to build the software for the robots. We'll be back in a moment, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Gray Solutions. Gray Solutions is a systems integrator that's been there, done that. Manufacturers turn to their team of over 275 solutioneers with unusual challenges, head scratchers others couldn't or wouldn't dare take on. Gray Solutions has done this time and time again thanks to their in-the-trenches experience and beyond-the-box applications in production. Personally, I've really gotten to know Gray Solutions over the past few years. I've seen the accolades they've received from the industry. I've gotten to know their solutioneers and their expertise in everything ranging from automation and controls to digital transformation, cybersecurity, robotics, vision, process packaging, all the way up to some significant turnkey solutions. But most recently, I got to know their founder and CEO, Walker Maddox, during his appearance on episode 158 of Manufacturing Happy Hour. If you want to hear for yourself how Walker has turned Gray Solutions into more than just a systems integrator, but a team of industrial trailblazers that let curiosity lead them to creative solutions and profitable outcomes for their customers, then head to manufacturinghappyhour.com 158 to tune in today or visit them at graysolutions.com. I'm excited to see how Gray Solutions continues to innovate and revolutionize smart manufacturing. I recommend that you see for yourself as well. And now, back to today's episode. So let's jump here to the present day. And you kind of probably answered a little bit of this in that last one, but how do you describe rapid robotics as if you're having a drink with someone at, I don't know, Harmonic Brewing's right around the corner from here. There's a lot of good spots around around this area. How do you describe what you do as if you're hanging out with someone at a bar? Well, first I would say, if we're talking business at a bar, I want a margarita. Okay. Um, that would be to start. And, okay. uh, and and then I would say, if somebody asked, you know, what, what does Rapid do? I would say, we are a company that develops software that provides human instincts to a off-the-shelf robotic arm. And those instincts are directly related to how to operate manufacturing operations that are common across, you know, almost every sector. So that means instead of having a human put, you know, a piece of plastic into a machine a hundred times or put a package of lunch meat into a box a thousand times a day, Mm -hmm. um, that's stuff that a robot should be doing, right? The humans should be, their humans are high value and there are not enough humans who want those jobs. And so in order to keep up with production requirements, their automation is required and we make it affordable and fast with the same level of reliability or even more so in a lot of cases than, than what a human brings to the table. And 
you've always had the same mission here at Rapid Robotics, but as I understand it, you're going through a refocus in terms of what you're doing and what you're focusing on in the market right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that story, where you were and how you got to where you are now? Absolutely. So started the company about four and a half years ago, and the original intent of the company hasn't changed, which is delivering the world's largest labor for, like labor workforce that is fully automated. And, and so in order to do that, the first thing we had to do as a company was develop all of the internal tools for automating the deployment process as much as possible. So it was process automation, internal tooling, 24-7 support dashboards to manage all of our customers' equipment and make sure we could do remote support and basically all of the cloud infrastructure for communicating with those robots um, and for teaching them new things remotely without having to go on site. So that was the first like three-ish, three and a half years of the company. And we had a lot of success doing this. We could and still could deploy 25 to 40 robots a month, which is far more than most systems integrators. So we could close a deal and three to four weeks later, deploy that system Mm -hmm. to the customer site, having it produce real parts. And so that was a huge step change from the 12 to 18 months that a systems integrator might take given their wait times and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so that was huge. Now, in order to solve this problem, this is not a dozens or hundreds of people problem, right? This is a massive, the labor shortage is upwards of 700,000 unfilled positions right now in manufacturing alone. So this is a hundreds of thousands to millions of of workers problem. Mm -hmm. And so in order to solve that, what we looked at is said, okay, deploying 30 or 40 a month and having to hire deployment technicians as we do those in order to get more and more scale, deploying 100 a month is not our goal. And so we could keep hiring more and more and more deployment technicians mm-hmm. to deploy these robots. But at the end of the day, this should be a technology solution. And so the refocus of our resources and all of our efforts is on maturing and making much more robust our computer vision technologies that enable us to see what's happening in the work cell and respond in real time to what we're seeing. And this is a set of solutions called the Rapid ID suite, right? Mm -hmm. And so Rapid ID means rapid identification, rapid grasping, so we can see a part, we can pick it in motion, static, anything, and place it accurately where it's supposed to go. And so that refocus is around core IP, around computer vision and, you know, training models and things like that, that enable the fast onboarding of new parts with zero programming at all Mm -hmm. uh, on the robotic side. And so that focus with that enables us as we scale, we're going to be deploying thousands of robots a month. And in order to solve the labor crisis, the only way to do that is with technology that scales in such a way where it's easily repeatable and you can fill that labor shortage with thousands of robots, not with dozens or hundreds. Well, one thing that I think is unique about your refocusing story uh, that hasn't come up yet is you didn't do this out of like necessity of being a startup and the funding runway was running dry. You did this because you knew you needed to refocus on your mission. So tell me a bit more about this. What was like an investor's reaction to this? That's a great question. So um, first of all, our internal investors, our existing board and existing investors. I mean, you can look online. We closed a $40 million round like two and a half, three years ago, something like that, Mm -hmm. um, a series B round. And so we had a lot of cash. And the trick was where and how do you deploy that money in order to get the best outcome? At the time, it was all about growth at all costs. So our new investors and our board and the market was saying, higher, 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 grow at all costs, screw the burn rate, Mm -hmm. right? Like, let's just build up this team to go to market. And we were closing a lot of deals. The problem was those deals were not profitable enough. We weren't building a balanced business 
because we were spending so much money on marketing and sales team and SDRs and all of the the components that go into it. And so we hit the pause button when our burn rate got to the point where it's like our revenue is growing like really, really well, but the burn rate is growing even out of whack with that. And so we took a hard look and said, if we don't start taking more control of how much money we're spending, uh, then we're going to end up like you name the number of robotics companies and other kinds of companies that being, well, the market dynamics will change. The sales process will get easier as more customers understand more. Well, I don't like running a business um, relying on external factors to come into place. Mm-hmm. And so the it was a six-month-long planning process um, working with our board, with our investors. And so when they saw us execute on this transition and bring our burn down to you know, 10x, actually 10x lower today than it was six months ago, Wow! and do it without losing a single solitary customer and maintaining the levels of support and that revenue, we are close to profitable. And and so and now also with building you know all of this new tech and refocusing our resources on on the new tech that enables us to scale without continuously growing the team with every deal that we close mm-hmm. right so the scalability of the solution to make up for not having to hire as many people is what drives profitability so our internal investors are thrilled mm-hmm. right because the new investor market is not about growth at all costs right the new investor market is very clearly about balancing your business yeah. and having your your you know CAC ratios be relevant to if you're spending $100,000 to close a deal in total and yep. the deal is worth 120,000 a year, that's not a good that's not a good deal, mm-hmm. right? And so by changing our our form of operation and our focus, internal investors were thrilled. New investors, we're not raising right now, but when I'm talking to new investors to introduce them to the business and I talk about this transition, the reaction has been incredibly positive. The trans and you know, I've done a lot of fundraising in, in my career and I've always found that transparency with investors is absolutely the best way to go. Mm-hmm. So sitting in front of investors and it was like, this is Rapid 1.0. And what we're working on now is Rapid 2.0. And here's why. And here's the transitions that we made and the hard decisions we had to make. The amount of respect from new investors saying, I wish every one of my companies would do that. We had one investor ask if I could come to a like masterclass with the rest of his companies because mm-hmm. he's watched four of his other companies that were really, really well funded drive themselves into the ground by expecting other things to change instead of taking control over what you can take control over. And so I think it's been a very, very positive outcome. Not easy, very, very difficult transition, but we are through it. And, you know, again, um, just having a lot of success. So I would love for the manufacturing leaders out there that are listening to learn a couple things from you. You just mentioned you were asked to lead a masterclass. If you were to give that masterclass, what would be the top one, two, or three things yeah. that would be the takeaways, the lessons, the, you know, if you're going to do this, this is how you do it. Yeah. So first and foremost, you mentioned when you asked the question that we did it before we had to. Yeah. If you have a gun to your head and that gun is a time frame at which you're out of money, then you're not going to make good decisions. Yeah. Right. You're. It's like, you know, putting somebody in, under duress, except putting a whole company under duress, right, for X amount of time and hopes that an investor might come in and save you or in hopes that you land that big customer that is not in your control totally. And so, so many companies do that and they wait until it's too late. We did it so far in advance, right, that we had total control over what happens next. Mm -hmm. And so by doing that, like we didn't have the gun to our head so we could future plan every aspect of the business from, you know, five different financial models that if this happens, then this, if this happens, then this, if this happens, then this, everything from headcount planning to demand generation to what kind of customers we're going after was all figured out, right? And so, you know, it is, 
don't wait until the gun is on your head. Mm-hmm. And that's number one. And number two, I've already kind of said this, but take control of the things you can control. Mm-hmm. And if it's out of your control, do not rely on it. You can be hopeful, but you should not run your business based off of it. Yep. Two great tips. Another thing that came up in your story was that you didn't lose a single customer when you were doing this refocus. So how did you go about doing that? Because I asked you what your investors thought. What did your customers think as you were going? Through? I mean, so the customers had questions, um, you know, hey, you know, where's the deployment technician that deployed my robot? You know, mm-hmm. why is he not there anymore? Yeah. Um, and we explained because we're moving to a model that the deployment technicians are not going to be as necessary. We Going from having one deployment technician work on one deployment at a time for to one deployment technician being able to work on 10 at a time. Yeah. That's the kind of scale we need. And so when we explain that to the customers, our customers are our partners. And we actually, it's one of our core values is we're a part of our customer's team and they're a part of ours. And so when we talk to them, I have already built levels of trust with them over the years that we've worked together. And we say what we're doing, they look and say, well, I'm glad that you're making the decisions that will mean you're still going to be around in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we've had no complaints, no concerns, as long as we're transparent and explain what's happening. Next round of our interviews coming up right after a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by SwipeGuide. SwipeGuide is helping frontline workers perform at their best through standard work instructions and skills development. Their clear-cut platform lets frontline teams coordinate instructions, job aids, and training to optimize processes. All of these aspects add up inside of a manufacturing operation, keeping motivation high and operations running. I mean, SwipeGuide is right in line with one of our biggest themes here on Manufacturing Happy Hour, empowering frontline teams. Their customers are saying the same thing. Here's a quote from a recent review. SwipeGuide has been fantastic for empowering our operators. They now have all the information and knowledge they need to do their jobs at their fingertips. Plus, if you really want to hear how SwipeGuide is making a difference for manufacturers, then head back and listen to episode 167, where SwipeGuide CEO Willemine Schneider and Joris Stolk from Heineken jump on the show to discuss how SwipeGuide's impacted their global brewing operations. If you're a regular listener here, you know that talking about how technologies apply to brewing is certainly one of our favorite topics on the show. And you can get to that episode by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 167. If you're looking for a hassle-free solution for sharing how-tos and boosting know-how across frontline teams, then look no further and head to swipeguide.com today. And now, back to today's interview. What should the future of vision solutions look like in the automation world? We're making a big pivot here in what, in like the focus of our conversation now, but now that you've gone through this change and you're focused on computer vision technologies, what does the future look like to achieve the type of scale that drove you into this industry and that you know we need to achieve? So computer vision, when we started the company, was always part of our plans. Mm-hmm. And we had a number of computer vision features that really did quicken the setup time and deployment time for a robot. So for example, smart setup was a feature we released, I don't know, two years ago or so that enabled us to, when we're setting up a robot, roll it up to the machine. And instead of having to reprogram all the waypoints to be exactly the way that they should be in on the on the floor versus when it was in our staging facility here, mm-hmm. we instead the cameras on the system would look at the surroundings and understand how to adjust all those waypoints. And when something changed in the work cell, they could adjust the waypoints without any reprogramming. So 
But that's about as far as we could go with it at the time, because the level of accuracy required to do a pick and place operation, whether you're loading a machine or putting stuff in a box, you can't miss. And a human doesn't miss, right? And so in order to get to the level where the, you know, no matter what the object is, we're able to grasp it, manipulate it, and turn it into a very accurate placement in its mm -hmm. end place, that was not something we felt like was attainable reliably mm -hmm. four and a half years ago. But we always, we've been watching as, you know, cameras have gotten better and the, you know, response times of the arms SDKs has gotten better. We've been more and more able to look and say, vision actually can solve the entire problem, not just the setup problem. And so that's why we're focused on it. And it's the, you know, the, the scale and mat maturity of the, both the hardware and the software side of things. So everything for how you train the models, which is now, you know, we're working on, on stuff, for example, that is few shot, take five pictures of an object, and we will infer everything about that object so that we don't even have to train models on any specific objects. And that's in the works and things that just were not even possible three, four years ago. Um, and so that enables us to be very confident that we're deploying reliable solutions, meaning it's not going to work one of every, you know, it's not going to mess up one out of every thousand times. It's yeah. not going to mess up at all. Yeah. Right? And making sure that we can do that reliably, that was the vital thing. And that's what's happened in the space that enables us to, to more focus on that direction. I want to, I'm going to split this next question up into a couple parts. So I've been asking everyone about artificial intelligence and how that plays into their strategy these days as well. How does AI play into everything that you just talked about? And do describe it from like a very pragmatic sense. We don't need to get caught up in any of the fluff. Yeah. So that way the audience is digesting these very straightforward applications around AI. Being pragmatic. We'll take the simplest object, a box with sides, right? Yeah. A, a straight up, you know, box or rectangle box or whatever. Um, so if you wanted to build it a model that, mm. you know, we would tell the robot how to interact with that box to put it on a pallet or put it in a bigger box or something mm. like that, you know, the old way of doing it would have been to, you know, write every time you get a new box, you know, train the model on that box. Mm -hmm. What AI has enabled us to do is train our system on what is a box, yeah. right? And so it knows a box has X amount of sides. It knows that it might have tape on it, might have some labels. It knows it could be brown, it could be white, it could be, you know, uh, plastic, right? Mm -hmm. It is a box. And so you can put any kind of box through our camera system and the robot will respond immediately and pick that box up, knowing exactly where the center point is, having to find it as a box, and also having the intent programmed into it. So AI allows us to do intent-based or, in, you know, we call it human instinct-like mm -hmm. actions. So, you know, all the things are coming down the conveyor and they're slightly different places. Um, old version of robotics, you would have to train the model on every single one of those objects mm -hmm. um, if they're different. In the new version of it, we're like, that's that object. And we know what we're supposed to do. The robot knows what it's supposed to do with that object. Yeah. So you can feed 20 different objects down to us. And, you know, these kinds of objects go in that box. These kinds of objects go on this conveyor, this, whatever the case is. And the camera's making the decisions based on the pre-oriented intent and the training that it's received via AI. So that's that's really the value of, of, of where it comes from for, for us. So one of my last questions in our conversation is how do you make... AI and vision and automation and robotics accessible to the masses? By making all of the hardware and technology on the software as opaque as possible. So to the customer, they don't care how we build it. They don't care how it works, mm -hmm. right? And so by simplifying another one of our core values, um, simplicity over complexity and only showing the customers what they absolutely need in order to make it go and stop. 
and every other kind of action should be taken automatically, recovery yep. modes automatically. So if something goes wrong, instead of the customer having to say something went wrong and send us a support ticket, the arm, we should be able to tell through sensing, force, and torque, as well as the vision, uh, the camera inputs, we know what went wrong. So the arm, because it's intent-based, knows what it needs to do in order to resolve that conflict on the conveyor belt or whatever happened. And so that is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I forget what the original question was. You might have to... I, I, I do one of those things where I branched off. Oh, no, 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 no. You're good. You're good. How do we make it accessible? Oh, right, right. Events? So accessibility yeah. is about is about simplicity. Yeah. Um, it's like the Salesforce-ification yeah. of robotic deployments. I mean, Salesforce came around and made on-premise software obsolete and the complexity of standing up your own server farms in order to install you know, a software platform for your whole company. Those days are over. And prior to those days, it was very expensive to you know, install proprietary customized systems to mm-hmm. be proprietary for your needs. And that's what we're bringing to the robotics market, right? Is the deployment of robotics, robotics the deployment should be commoditized, right? The arms are now inexpensive. It's the installation and oversight and management of those arms that is really expensive and yeah. time consuming. And so get the, the commoditization of that, that makes it attractive for our customers. The speed at which we can deploy, the affordability. We have one customer that we're working with in a proposal stage right now that for the same price as one work cell of robots for one of their 100 lines, right, they can get 10 rapid work cells. So like that's huge, right? Because if they have 100 lines and it costs them $3 million per line in the traditional sense to, to put automation there, that's $300 million of CapEx. They might do one or two a year. And so in our model, they can do 10 of those lines in the year, and it's cost the same amount of money as using a systems integrator. Yep. And just back to, I think, one of the things that got you into this industry, the more we're able to get those robots out there, the more it's not as much of this capital-intensive, maybe hindering type of project, the more positive impact we're going to have on manufacturing and the GDP and everything mm-hmm. that goes along with that. Exactly. I guess my last question then is, is there anything that we didn't touch on today that you wish we would have covered? I don't think so. I mean, I told you before this, I'm going to talk. So I I think I I talked a a whole heck of a lot. And I got one for you then, because you mentioned that uh, if we were having a business conversation over a drink, it would be a margarita. So where in San Francisco, maybe specifically in the mission, where would we be going for that margarita? Yeah, it's so funny. (laughs) I had to ask. (laughs) I I bookmarked that in my head. I'm like, I'm going to come back to this. So by far, so I I call them vacation drinks. Yeah. So I, I don't drink that often. And uh, so when I do, I'd like to feel like I'm on the beach somewhere and, you know, it's like, Fair. you know, not too sweet, but, you know, though kind of booze heavy, not too sweet, but refreshing, sort of that middle ground. And so the best cocktails, I think, in the city are a place called Liho Liho Yacht Club. Oh, yeah. Um, there. That's and a good uh, spot. they've got, you know, they've got the rum cocktails, the Mr. Skipper, if you go, it's okay. fantastic. Um, and so, so that, that's where I typically find myself, places that have a, really good, like, well-done, you know, tropical drink. I wasn't sure if you were going to send us in the direction of one of San Francisco's many iconic uh, tiki bars. Because they're, they're, they're all they're too sweet. <laughs> they're, yeah, no, no, I'm talking like the really, like the original Mai Tais and the, you know, really good natural margaritas and that kind of stuff. So they're hard to come by. And there, there's some really, really good cocktail bars in, in the city, but I just, you know, I don't live in the city anymore. Sure. So I'm a little less connected to them, but Liho Liho is a, a, a standard go-to for the food. All the food is amazing. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah. I remember going there for dinner when I was out here. It's it's a great spot. For everyone listening, that'll be in the show notes along with how to connect with Jordan and Rapid Robotics. And with that, I just want to say thank you, Jordan. For yeah, you got show. it, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. You too. Bye. <laughs> 
still on a mission to deliver the world's largest labor workforce that is fully automated. You heard it from Jordan. I think that's very cool. I mean, towards the middle of the interview, you heard Jordan share this. Rapid Robotics has been deploying 25 to 40 robots a month. That's more robots per month than most systems integrators. They have scaled, but they're going to hit the numbers they need to make a big impact. Getting into the hundreds, thousands of deployments per month, that's where the refocus towards making their computer vision technologies more robust to scale even more effectively comes in. This is also a perfect example of how investor sentiment has changed very recently here in 2024 and back in 2023, where it's no longer growth at all costs, but building more of a balanced business that still has growth, but focused on investing in the right places, profitability in the present rather than someday. A lot of great stuff from Jordan here. Thank you all for listening to this episode. And of course, if you want to learn more, if you want to connect with Jordan and Rapid Robotics and Go to Liho Liho Yacht Club when you're in San Francisco. Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 172 to get taken straight to today's show notes. I did look up the drink he was talking about, the Skipper, and I think I found the right one. This drink has sugarcane rum, Skipper rum, amaretto, pineapple, and lemon, so no doubt that sounds like a great drink. Okay, as we wrap up, a few quick announcements first. Thank you, Gray Solutions. Thank you, Swipe Guide, for sponsoring today's episode. And thank you as well to Automate and A3, the Association for Advancing Automation. I told you at the start of the interview, they are having their Automate show in 2024 on May 6th through May 9th at McCormick Place in Chicago, Illinois. Make sure you get registered for that by going to automateshow.com. It's one of the biggest events of the year, one of my favorites. If you are in the automation space, you got to be at this event. And yes, uh, you could expect a manufacturing happy hour party taking place there as well. As we did here in San Francisco, right after this interview, we strolled down to Bear Bottle Brewing. If you are interested in co-hosting a manufacturing happy hour event with me, well, hey, shoot me an email at Chris at manufacturinghappyhour.com with the subject line party, and let's get discussing. All right, that's it for this week. Stay innovative, stay thirsty, folks. We'll catch you again next time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour, powered by the Industrial Network.